We've been talking about the fruits of the Spirit, and the idea of when hearts collide is when our heart is hit by God's heart, it changes us on the inside. There is an important spiritual component to our walk with God. There's more than just an intellectual understanding of, say, the scriptures and theology and that sort of a thing. That stuff is important, but we need to have God's heart. And that's the fruits of the Spirit. And so we need to receive the Holy Spirit from God so that our heart can be full of the fruits of the Spirit and we can walk in the ways of God. And it can be a heart connection with God. And then the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 says this. We've been reading this each week. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So here... We see this list of the fruits of the Spirit. I don't think this is an exhaustive list. I think it's a list of examples. There are other heart conditions that we receive from God. But this list is really an amazing list when you think of what would it be like if every morning when you woke up, if this was your heart condition, if you woke up with your heart full of love and of joy and of peace and all the rest of the things on the list, if that was who you were on the inside, what would your life be like? And then the next question is, what would it be like to know you if your heart condition was love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If that was your heart condition, what would it be like to know you? And what would the church, the kingdom of God, the capital C church, all the believers around the world, what would our impact in this world be if each believer was just exuding the love of God and was full of joy and had the peace that passes all understanding. If we were walking in the fruits of the Spirit, all two billion Christians on the planet, if that was what other people saw in us, how much would we be having impact in this world if this was who we all were and what was the overflow of our heart? But of course, the problem is, is that we've got other stuff in our heart too. Have you noticed that? Sometimes there can be some yucky stuff in here. And in Galatians chapter 5, it also talks about the, the sinful nature and the things that come from that. And those sorts of things can be, you know, shortcuts to trying to get peace or happiness or just get through the day. You know, we, we're trying to calm down so we do dumb things. And, and those are things that do damage over time. But the things of God are things that help us and that are very good for us, for those we know, and for this world. So I see no negative things in trying to grab hold of the fruits of the Spirit. So when hearts collide, the Spirit of God impacts our heart. That happens both individually and corporately. There's a Spirit in the room that can be negative, it can be positive. So we want to receive the Holy Spirit of God as a group. Now today we're going to talk about thankfulness. I'm going to make the assumption that a thankful heart is a godly heart. 
that when hearts collide, if we are thankful people, that that's part of God's heart. The thankfulness, of course, is not on the list that we see in Galatians chapter 5 of the fruit of the Spirit. But again, I'm making the assumption that, that a thankful heart is a godly heart. We need to be thankful. And today, the question is, is thankfulness an overflow of your circumstances? So like you notice that nice things and you give thanks for them. Or is thankfulness something that's in us that can help change our circumstances? We've talked about the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat before. A thermometer can tell the temperature, but it is powerless to change the temperature. A thermostat can both tell the temperature and change the temperature. And we as believers are not called to be thermometers, to say, yep, this world's pretty messed up and it's just going to stay that way and I'm going to gripe about it. That's not very helpful. But if we can notice that this world is full of darkness and full of pain and, and there's a need for God and we can bring that into the world and change the world, then we're both going to accurately understand reality and we'll be able to change it. That's a thermostat. Is thankfulness a thermometer thing or a thermostat thing? I'm convinced that thankfulness is a thermostat thing. And the reason I'm convinced of that is because some years ago when Thanksgiving was coming, I thought, well, I want to see when Jesus gave thanks. I'm going to do a little research and I'm going to dig in and find situations where Jesus gave thanks. And then I'll talk about that on the Sunday sermon and that should work fine. You know, so I thought I'm going to do a little research and find out when Jesus gave thanks. And what I found out was it's very difficult to find passages in the scriptures where Jesus gave thanks. I had to go to three different translations to get the phraseology of giving thanks And there's really only four situations in the scriptures where Jesus is recorded as giving thanks. And I'm assuming that Jesus gave thanks way more than that. But it's only recorded in four circumstances, four basic situations. And they're all challenging situations. And they all change. So we're going to ask three simple questions as we look at these. When did Jesus give thanks? What did he give thanks for? And what was the result? Before we get to that, I want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Make sure that we understand this idea of thankfulness, because I think there can be some unfortunate situations where Christians can take things a little too far. You know, I had somebody ask me one time, can you take the Bible too literally? Well, that's an interesting question. You can certainly take it too far and take it to mean something it's not saying. You know what I mean? You can take it kind of too legalistically. Too literally maybe is a little hard to say. But you can certainly misunderstand because you're driving too far into the ditch. And I think with thankfulness, that has happened to some extent. So I want to make sure that we don't go down that road. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Let's look at these verses and make sure that we understand them in a coherent way. So be joyful always. What does that mean? That means that we're to have an inner abiding joy. As we go through the struggles of life and the difficulties of life, we're to have an inner abiding joy. Now, if something very difficult happens, can you be sad? Sure. It's not saying never be sad. If something really hard happens, can you be heartbroken? Absolutely. Don't feel guilty about being heartbroken when something terrible happens. But there should be something deeper than that in your heart. 
which is the joy of the Lord, which gives us strength to fight the battle and hope for the future, even in the midst of difficult situations. So yes, be joyful always, but recognize when we go through hardships, we can grieve. It's okay to grieve. Don't take that too far and feel guilty for grieving in a very difficult circumstance. That's okay. Next verse. Pray continually. What's the King James for that one? Pray without ceasing. I've only heard people say this means we should pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I think that's unreasonable. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now be conscious of God all the time. Absolutely. You know what I mean? But prayer is different from being conscious of God. Be a Christian 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Absolutely. But take time, separate time and pray. You know, focus on God. Pray. 24 hours a day, seven days a week is impossible. You have to sleep. You know, you've got to go to work. You've got to do these things. You can be conscious of God in the midst of anything that you're doing, but you can't pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's not that big of a deal, but I'm just saying when we put Christianity into something that is completely impossible to do, it makes it difficult for people to follow, you know? So what does pray continually mean? It means have a vibrant, awesome prayer life. Have a prayer life that is just, you go to the throne of God and don't lose that prayer life. That's what pray continually means. It doesn't mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It means have a vibrant prayer life and don't lose your prayer life. How many people have had seasons of a vibrant prayer life and then it sort of faded off? What this is saying is keep that vibrant prayer life going. Don't lose it. And then verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, give thanks in all circumstances. Have you ever wondered what God's will was for you? Lord, what's your will for me? God's will for you is that you give thanks in all circumstances. Now, here's the deal. This is the thing that I think Christians have gotten a little bit messed up. They think that they're supposed to give thanks for all circumstances. And I think you're supposed to give thanks in all circumstances. And let me cite two situations. So when Jesus saw the money changers in the temple, did he give thanks for the money changers in the temple? No, he flipped the tables over. He made a whip and and got everybody out of there. He didn't say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for these money changers who are ripping people off and turning your temple into a market. You know, this is just thank you for that. He did not give thanks for that. Did Jesus give thanks for the Pharisees who were distorting the truths of God and taking people away from God instead of bringing them to God? Did he give thanks for the Pharisees? No. In fact, if you read Matthew chapter 23, you'll see all the woes that Jesus lays on the Pharisees. And one of them is this. He says, you'll travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you finally win one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Is he giving thanks for the Pharisees distorting the faith? No. But do you think he lost his thankful heart in the midst of those situations? No. He didn't lose his heart of thankfulness in the midst of that. So I think that what can be very difficult for people is when they're feeling like they're supposed to give thanks for everything, when they should be giving thanks in everything. If the devil attacks someone you love, don't give thanks for that. Fight it. Pray against that. Overcome. So when did Jesus give thanks? The first situation that I found where Jesus gives thanks is when they're having a a church event and they run out of food. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. 
An example of this situation, we've got the feeding of the 5,000. This also happens with the feeding of the 4,000. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, ah. So I mean, there's thousands of people here. How does this go? Verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. So there's 5,000 men plus women and children. They've got five loaves of bread and two fish. And from what I understand, the loaves were kind of small. They were meant for one person. Five loaves and two fish. And they've got thousands and thousands of people to feed. So verse 18, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. So when did Jesus give thanks? When they had thousands of people to feed and they had five loaves and two fish, he gave thanks in the situation when they had not enough resources. So he gave thanks when they didn't have enough resources. What did he give thanks for? For the meager resources that they did have. For the five loaves and the two fish. He broke the loaves and he gave thanks and they had thousands of people and this much food. He gave thanks for the meager provision that they had. And then what was the result? So he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So what was the result? They all eat and they had more leftovers at the end than what they started with. They started with five loaves. They ended up with 12 basketfuls of leftovers. This is the miracle power of thankfulness. Was Jesus giving thanks as like, well, I guess this is pretty good, you know, and, and this wasn't thermometer situation. This was thermostat situation. This was, we don't have enough resources, but we're going to give thanks for what we have. And that's going to change what we've got. And more is going to come in, which incidentally last week, I thanked you for being a good giving congregation said, well, we, you know, we're doing well. We need to have lights. We just buy lights. We don't have to do a a big giving campaign or anything like that. We don't put a nickel jar by the coffee. Just have yourself some coffee. We are able to do that because you're a good giving group of people. And then you know what happened? We had the largest offering last weekend that we've ever had in the history of the church. We've had larger special offerings for mission situations and things like that, but just for a regular offering. I don't usually do a a thank you for giving thing. I think that's the first time I've ever done that. Then this week is the miracle power of thankfulness sermon. And so then that's the example that we get from God. Isn't that interesting how that stuff all ties together? So I'm seeing thankfulness as something that changes our circumstances, not something that's just an overflow of our circumstances. We see that with the feeding of the 5,000. Now let's look at another situation. Jesus had lots of close friends in ministry when he was in his earthly ministry because he would travel from place to place and there were times when he would stay at someone's house. Can you imagine being someone who Jesus would stay with when he was traveling through your area? And there was a family that uh, had two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they were one of these people that knew Jesus very well. And he would come and stay at their house. And 
Mary would sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him speak, and she just just was in love with the whole thing. And Martha would yell at Mary for not helping, and, and there was just this situation. They were close with Jesus, and then Lazarus got sick. And so they're thinking, we're friends with Jesus. I mean, like, he stays at our house. We'll just send for Jesus. He heals people all the time and Lazarus will be fine. This is going to be a great testimony. So they send for Jesus. And if you know the story, Jesus didn't come and Lazarus died and they put him in the tomb and he's been in the tomb for four days. And finally, Jesus shows up and Martha has kind of a little theological discussion with Jesus because she's the pragmatic one and Mary doesn't even come out to see him. And so Jesus sends for Mary and Mary comes out and just says, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she just falls on the ground and starts to cry. And Jesus looks at Mary and sees someone who's having a faith crisis, who is no longer really believing that he can deal with the situation. And so Jesus now, of course, he sees it from a much broader perspective. Now, this is where we pick up the story, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. So he sees Mary. He's like, okay, where, where is Lazarus? And they take him to the tomb. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So they took away the stone and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. When did Jesus give thanks? Before Lazarus came out of the tomb, what did he give thanks for? That God hears him when he prays. In the situation where Martha and Mary are thinking, yeah, you're real awesome. Our brother died. Where, where were you? Couldn't you, I mean, don't you remember the time when that girl got healed way far away? Couldn't have you just done that? But instead, our brother dies. You just leave us in the situation where people are having a faith crisis, not believing that he is who he said he was, they're seeing such hardship that their faith is broken. In the middle of that situation, Jesus is giving thanks that he's got a connection with the Father and that the Father hears him. And then what's the result? Jump to 43. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. So Jesus gave thanks that the father hears him while Lazarus is still in the tomb and people are doubting him. Then he says, Lazarus, come out. The the result is that the dead man comes out and everything is restored. So we've got two situations where it's very difficult 
The next one is Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the 72, and they go and they do amazing things, and they come back and they tell the story of how even the demons submit to them in Jesus' name, and and Jesus, you know, is all excited about it. This is a little bit different situation where they're seeing a great victory. But then Jesus gives thanks that the truths of God have been hidden from the people who are wise and learned and have been revealed to little children. So he's acknowledging that his followers are not the wise and learned, but are the little children. They're the people who aren't that fancy. In fact, if you look at the 12 disciples, you know, people were amazed that they were doing important things because they weren't educated. They'd been with Jesus, but they hadn't been educated. They weren't fancy people. They were fishermen and, you know, just kind of normal people. And so Jesus didn't recruit the top level people. And he gave thanks for the people that he had. And what was the result? God used those men to change the world. You know, this is the 72, so it likely included the 12, it may have included the 7, Philip the Evangelist, and Stephen, and those guys, it could have included them, it doesn't list by name who these people are, but he gives thanks for these not wise and learned people, and then they're the ones that God uses to change the world. So here's the question, what challenges are you facing, when should you give thanks, what should you give thanks for? And what will the result be? So when do you give thanks? You give thanks before the problem is solved. What do you give thanks for? Any little thing that you can. Five loaves and two fish. Good enough. That God hears me even when the situation is showing that that's not how it's going. When you've got a just pretty mediocre team around you. Whatever your situation, give thanks first for what you've got, and believe for that to change your situation. It's the miracle power of thankfulness, not as a thermometer and just observing how things are, and when it finally goes good, you give thanks, but instead giving thanks as something that you're believing will change your circumstances. So here's, here's my next question. If you refuse to be thankful, what are your other options? You can be bitter, of course, unthankful, You can feel entitled, you can be discontent, you can blame other people. Let's be thankful. All right. Now, I think I said that there were four circumstances where Jesus is recorded as giving thanks. And the last one is recorded in Luke chapter 22. This is the last situation where Jesus is recorded as giving thanks. Starting in verse 17. This is at the Last Supper. Here's what it says. After taking the cup, he gave thanks. Now, again, I don't think it's amazing that Jesus gave thanks in these situations. What I think is amazing is that there aren't any other places that it's recorded that Jesus gave thanks. So the four situations are the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, the tomb of Lazarus, where he's looking at his followers and noticing that they're very just normal, average, maybe slightly below average types of people, and at the Last Supper, where in less than 24 hours, he'll go through being arrested, being falsely accused and convicted, scourged, crucified, and killed. This is less than 24 hours from the conclusion of all of that. He gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He gives thanks. When did he give thanks? Before he was to step into the hardest thing he would ever do. What did he give thanks for? For the broken body and the shed blood. That's what he gave thanks for. And what was the result? The result of Jesus going to the cross, allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. The result of that is actually up to you. Because what Jesus did was provide an opportunity. He provided an opportunity for people's sins to be forgiven, for them to have new life in Christ and follow Jesus. He gives us that opportunity. We can say, yes, Lord, I'm in, or we can push it aside and go on with our life. So the result is up to you. If you say, yes, Lord, then you get forgiveness. You get grafted into God's family line. You get the inheritance that comes with being one of his children. You're a co-heir with Christ, and you get to walk with God in this life. But if you refuse, then what Jesus has done has no effect. Let's go before the Lord. So Heavenly Father, we just honor you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Lord Jesus, thank you for modeling thankfulness in difficult circumstances. When you didn't have the resources, when you didn't have the team, when people didn't believe in you, and when you were going to go suffer, you were giving thanks in the midst of those situations. And thank you, Lord, that your sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for each one of us. That we can be fully forgiven and set free from our mistakes of our past, the sins we've committed. We can be set free from the condemnation that we have put on ourselves and we can be made clean and walk with you. Father, we need help having a thankful heart. We look at the situations of the world and and the the things that are going on and, and boy, sometimes we're just not thankful anymore. Help us to see thankfulness as something that can change our situation where we add thankfulness in to an otherwise difficult circumstance and it starts to get better. So Lord, by your spirit, give us thankful hearts. Overcome our bitterness, overcome our cynicism, overcome all those dark things and help us to have thankful hearts, whatever our circumstance, and believe you that those things would change. And Father, I pray a blessing over each one that's in this place right now, that your peace would fall upon us, that all our anxieties and fears would melt away. Lord, that your joy would be our strength, that we can know that you've got this. And Lord, that we would know how much you love us so that we can be filled up and have extra love in our hearts for those that we deal with that are hard to work with in this life. So Lord, bless us in that way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.